Chapter Three of Stories of the Ships by Lewis Ransom Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section Two: Getting Together. How the officers of the British and American ships that are working together in European waters are making each other's acquaintance. Perhaps the most gratifying tribute I have heard paid to the American Battle Squadron, which has been for many months incorporated in and working with the Grand Fleet, was an unconscious one. How are the Americans getting on? I asked an officer of the Commander-in-Chief's staff a few days ago. The Americans? he repeated. Oh, you mean the XBF? they have merged so completely into the grand fleet that we long ago ceased to think of them as anything but a part of ourselves indeed that's just what they have become a part of ourselves they're doing their part i couldn't say more for them the world was a good deal impressed when just after the german offensive started last march president wilson acting on general pershing's suggestion agreed to the brigading of the american troops in france with the british and french armies until such time as they were in sufficient strength to form an army of their own it was a wise action from the military point of view alone but doubly so in giving our allies so unmistakable example of the spirit in which america was entering the common fight it is characteristic of the essential difference between land and sea operations that the announcement of a similar sacrifice of national pride in the furtherance of allied unity this time on the part of the american navy and antedating the other by several months should have to be withheld from the public until the significance of it was largely overshadowed by the more dramatic conditions under which the decision to brigade the american troops with the allied armies was taken yet it is a fact that until the arrival of the american battleships white with brine of the atlantic across which they had ploughed their way last winter never before in history had the warships of one nation endeavoured to cooperate with those of another save as a separate fleet never indeed up to that time had such a consummation been deemed practicable but the american navy department and especially the distinguished admiral appointed to the command of the first squadron to be sent to european waters realizing that nothing but national pride and certain service practices which they felt sure yankee adaptability would be equal to modifying were the only obstacles to an arrangement which could not but add incalculably to the weight they were throwing into the balance decided quite on their own initiative and without any pressure whatever from the british that all american battleships should be incorporated into the grand fleet instead of operating as a distinct american force from that time on to all intents and purposes it was as though so many new british units fresh from the yards of the tyne or the clyde had been added to the grand fleet the american ships still flew the stars and stripes and there were no changes in pay uniform discipline nor in such technical practices as affected the efficiency of the ship as a fighting unit but in every particular involving relations with the grand fleet as a whole british practice was and is the rule 
everything that any british ship or squadron does devolves likewise upon every american ship and squadron this extending from such things as providing work parties for road-making or other jobs on the beach to sallying forth on one of the great concerted sweeps through the north sea in which the bulk of the floating might of the whole world is on the move one american battleship which crossing the atlantic alone and arriving at base only a few hours before the grand fleet was ordered to sea on what at the moment looked like the hottest kind of a hun scent made a great hit with the sport-loving british by replenishing their bunkers in a wildly rushed coaling and raising steam in time to get under way and swing into line with her sisters who had been grooming themselves for just such an event for many weeks the next morning i was standing on the bridge of a british super-dreadnought with an historic name when the admiral read out a signal from the fleet flagship which made it appear likely that an action with the german high sea fleet was but a matter of a few hours walking out to the end of the bridge he turned his glasses back to where steaming hard in line ahead the american ships were coming up in perfect station on our starboard quarter running his glasses back along the line he rested his glance for a moment on the last ship there's the good old texas he said with an affectionate smile not an inch out of station and steaming with the best of them you'd never think to see her that she was bucking the swells of the atlantic at this time yesterday morning my word what a stroke of luck for her if she does happen to stumble in her first twenty-four hours with the grand fleet into what the rest of us have been waiting four years for it turned out to be the same old disappointment after all this time as so many others but the plucky bid the texas made for a chance of participating in dare tog pleased the british mightily and won her at the outset a high place in their esteem that the newcomers would have much to learn from the three and four-year veterans of the grand fleet was only to be expected and right eagerly they set themselves out to master the things that can only be taught by experience but the exchange of ideas was not entirely one-sided one day i heard the gunnery lieutenant of my ship speaking with great enthusiasm of the american telephone system and of the astonishing speed with which the yanks loaded their turret guns the commander came back from the u s s new york loud in the praise of the quality of the american paints which he claimed gave a surface much more easily kept clean than the similar grades provided in the british ships the swift smart american launches always evoked favorable comment and even the strange-looking birdcage masts won occasional converts perhaps the most interesting thing of all is the large and increasing number of british officers that one hears speaking sympathetically and even approvingly of the total abstinence in force in the american ships the fact that the officers of the latter are practically unanimous in declaring that they would never favor going back to the old regime has made a good deal of an impression on the british and more and more frequently i hear the older royal naval officers saying that they wished they had the same anti-liquor rules in force in their own ships in these and a score of other similar things one has evidence every day that while the british fleet is a constant inspiration to the americans the coming of the latter has not been without its tonic effects on the former 
social entertainment between ship and ship is one of the features of british naval life that has been most conspicuous by its absence since the war began and perhaps the highest compliment that could be paid the americans was that the grand fleet did not consider it necessary to make any exception to the general practice in their case senior and junior officers of ships that chanced to be moored conveniently near each other lunched and dined back and forth but no more or no less than if the newcomers had been english rather than american there was no drinking of high-sounding toasts and the nearest thing to formality in this respect i recall was the proposing the health of the president following that of the king with the port for the rest when one of our latin allies could not possibly resist clinking glasses to america the entente victory and no end of similar toast the briton contented himself with the unobtrusive cheerio or chin chin but what these little unpremeditated inter-wardrobe affairs lacked in formality they made up in congeniality one of the most memorable evenings i ever spent was that following a dinner in a certain famous light cruiser of the australian navy at which four officers of the u s s wyoming which chanced to be moored in the next line were present there was a concert by the ship's company that evening and after a delectable hour and a half of anglo-australian chaff and harmony had been brought to a close by the playing of god save the king and the star-spangled banner the officers returned to the wardrobe for a quiet hour with their pipes the thing started i believe when somebody wound up the gramophone with a chu chin chow record on it and everybody joined in on the chorus then it transpired that the american guests showed unmistakable evidence of teamwork in their harmony and presently the others fell out and left the quartet singing alone two or three strange new jazzy rags which had not yet won their way to popular favor on this side of the atlantic gave way to mississippi and tennessee and the classic melody of i've been working on the railroad finishing up with a flourish and a snappily executed bit of buck and winging the guests then insisted that they had occupied the centre of the stage long enough and demanded that the next round of the show should be british the hosts affirming that they could not think of producing an anticlimax by following on after so finished a musical performance as that just concluded said they would nevertheless endeavour to provide their share of entertainment by playing a game of chair polo this spirited competition quickly resolved itself into a general rough-and-tumble out of which the fatherly major of marines who was the senior officer of the guests only managed to keep one of the young american lieutenants by reminding him that it was not becoming that an officer and gentleman should break furniture outside of his own ship when all the british officers had fought themselves into a state of collapse a hulking young midshipman who was roosting precariously on two legs of the lounging chair under which the commander was imprisoned gave vent to his exultation by taking in a lungful of air and expending it in the blood-curdling maori war-cry which he had learned in his new zealand home before he joined the navy that gave the visitors a chance to get in the running again and putting their heads close together and beating out the rhythm with their fists they fairly started the rivets on the wardroom ceiling with the thunderous bark of the navy yell 
the maori war-whoop was like the chirping of a cricket in comparison wide-eyed with wonder and admiration the british officers relaxed the death grips in which they had been holding each other and gathered near to see at close range how the big noise was made the gunnery lieutenant slipped away for a moment presently to reappear wearing his ear defenders I always use em when the big stuff is firing he explained when do we start the next run nothing would do but that the officers of h m s blank should be taught the yankee navy yell a class was formed then and there and lessons were in full swing an hour later when the officer of the watch poked his head timidly inside the door to announce that the boat for the american officers had been standing by for twenty minutes but that he had been waiting for a pause in the singing to report it he was a serious-looking little sub that officer of the watch and i never could make quite sure whether he thought it was really singing perhaps a new kind of yankee ragtime he was interrupting or not ducking under hammocks in which restive would-be sleepers were stirring we filed up the ladder and came out into the frosty air of the quarter-deck to speed the parting guests good nights were spoken softly in deference to the captain whose sleeping cabin was just beneath our feet and the four cloaked officers tiptoed gently down the gangway and aboard their waiting launch then the commander passed a quietly spoken order down the line along the rail ready now all together one two three with the sudden roar of a full-gun salvo the navy yell boomed out on the still air and went rolling forth across the still waters to set strange echoes chattering in the distant hills a sudden surge of quickly suppressed laughter floated back to us from the receding launch but the visiting officers were on their good behaviour once they were out in the open again and the challenge was not taken up the commander was chuckling as he bade me good-night in the half-darkness of the wardroom flat there can't have been such another yell as that heard by these quiet waters since they were first ploughed by the galleys of the old norse vikings he said with a laugh i'd really like to know just how many of the fifty or sixty thousand men of the grand fleet awakened by it knew to what navy that navy they heard referred to not that it makes much matter though now that we're all one end of section two